Hello and welcome to Pre-Published. I'm Sophia. Thomas Taylor is an illustrator and author who I've wanted to talk to for a long time. He started out in the 1990s, age 23, by creating some of the most famous cover art in the world. Lately, thanks to his Eerie on Sea middle grade series, starting with Malamanda, he's become a successful international author in his own right. I was interested to know the part that RSI played in his shift from illustrating to pure writing. You might think that the cover art for Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone would be the key moment in his career, but what's truly fascinating is that it isn't. That moment came over 20 years later in 2018. I found it honestly inspiring. Listen out too for Thomas's top tip, which corrects a mistake that many pre-published writers I know have made. We recorded this episode in August 2021. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So, Thomas, welcome to Pre-Published. Hello, Sophia. Thank you for having me on. So happy to chat to you. Um, I gather that you have a book coming out in September. Is that right? We're, we're talking in... Yes, that's right. So um, I, it's the third book in my Mysteries of Eerie on Sea series. And it's called Shadowgast. And it's, um, yeah, it's got a kind of Halloween theme to it. So um, it's coming out in good time, coming out in September. So this is this is book three of the series and they're sold internationally, aren't they? I see that you're coming out in America at the same time, which is very exciting. Yes, yes, it's um, sold in 20 different territories. Oh, um, you. So um, yeah, it'd be translated pretty well. In certain countries, it's really, really doing well. I mean, in, in, in Turkey, it's, it's doing pretty much as well as it is in the UK. I, I've had um, webinars with Turkey and uh, it's been quite exciting to... Um, to talk about a book that seems very English to me, but which I'm, I'm glad to say is quite universal and seems to be finding favour in places. Um, I think anywhere with a strong maritime history can relate to a seaside town being slightly strange and liminal place. Um, so I'm pleased to see that actually happening. So looking at the the, uh, the title Shadowgast, I get the impression we're, we're talking ghosts and, and sort of gothic feel. Is that the feel of it? Yes, it's a kind of gothic sense that runs through all these books. So it's it's set in a seaside town. This third one involves um, a magic show in a theatre at the end of the pier. Um, so I'm trying to hit all those slightly sort of cliché seaside town things. And this, this third one has that end of, end of pier show. Um, and the magic trick involves a magical lantern, which uh, turns out to be haunted by this um, disembodied shadow called the Shadow Ghast. But, uh, uh, may or may not be released by the performing of a certain magic trick. I don't want to spoil it. It sounds to me as though you, I'm hearing a description of a rather perfect life here. So you're, you're writing middle grade fiction and uh, and you live by the sea, I gather. So you are you are just kind of lead, leading this this wonderful children's author life. Is, is it as good as it sounds? I think, well, to be honest, at the moment it is. Yes, I mean, I, I um, yes, the sea is just three minutes walk from where I am. I can't actually see it from my studio, but I... I um, I'm very close and um, having moved here and kind of experienced what it's like to be in a seaside town in the winter, which is it's really that that inspired my Eerie on Sea books because all the stories are set in winter. Um, but yeah, I, I am very, very pleased to be working through a five book contract and I'm currently working on book four. So it's a pretty good spot to be. And where where is the seaside town? Uh, well, I'm near Hastings um, on the South Coast. You, you did live in France at one stage, didn't you? 
Yes, you know, I lived in, in Normandy, so not, not too far from where I am now, really, um, just the other side of the <laughs> channel, uh, seven years. I lived in, in Rouen and in, um, also in the countryside, um, and that was all rather lovely as well. In fact, that's kind of where I began my, 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 my writing, my main efforts to, to switch from an illustrator to writer began there. Well, this is something that I wanted to to talk to you about. I mean, you you, you talk about your studio, which which again makes me sound, feel very wistful. I love the idea of writing in a studio, um, and and you started out as an illustrator, which will come to. But there, there's a, there's a, almost a sort of throwaway line in in the biography on your website, um, which says that um, and it was around 2006, wasn't it? You had RSI and you switched from being a, a picture book writer and illustrator to more um, sort of co concentrated writing. Um, and that absolutely fascinates me. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that, that quite important switch in focus and career? Yes, so uh, yes, the first 10 years of my career, I was mainly an um, illustrator of picture books, although I did write them as well. But I had a very uh, labor intensive style uh, and I never really got too far into the more digital um, mediums that would be used um, now. So it was very much an analog style with, with a lot of paint and a lot of uh, colored pencils. And the, the, the specific style did involve a lot of pressing very hard with my fingertips to create um, uh, enough color and enough sort of presence with, with the pencil line. And actually this ends up really does concentrate a lot of effort down into some very, very fine um, nerves and um, tendons uh, in one hand only. And I did start to get really real shooting pains at my hand and in my wrist. Well, it wasn't really my wrist, it was in, in my hand and it was quite unpleasant. And actually as time went by and I carried on working like that, I, I would sort of lose power in my fingers. So I wasn't able to press with the pen. I mean, that sounds like a very sort of slightly esoteric sort of concern, but actually I boxed myself into a corner where the way I was working did require this kind of very intense physical um, drawing with, 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 with um, very sort of soft pens, uh, pencils I was pressing very hard with. And yeah, and it became increasingly difficult to do it. So, um, um, I mean, that's not the main reason why I switched to writing. I'd, I'd uh -huh. wanted to write right. for a very long time. You know, I hadn't, I, it wasn't simply that, that, but it was, it just felt like it was a message to sort of stop, um, literally stop grinding away at this particular <laughs> path <laughs> I was on, which I'd done quite well. I mean, I did quite well as a, as a picture book writer, but I sort of reached a natural end to it and I was running out of picture book shaped ideas and having this terrible pain in my hand. And, um, and then of course, when I started typing, that pain disappeared. Oh, how interesting. So, yeah. It, it did feel a little like uh, somebody or something was trying to give me a message. <laughs> so you were already telling stories by that stage. You'd written the the Clovis picture books, and um, did you have other longer form fiction ideas bubbling up in you by then? By the time the hand started hurting. Oh yes, certainly. I mean, I, I wanted to write ever since I was um, a child. Ever since I first discovered the joy of reading a novel and and um, you know, when you're when you're ten or however old you are, and you reach the end, and you suddenly realise you can you can flip the book round and start again and re-enter that sort of world. I'd always wanted to write stories, um, kind of longer fiction, um, but I'd always been encouraged to go down a more visual arts route, which is great. I'm not knocking that, but um, nobody ever 
asked me about my my story ideas so <laughs> yeah you know I went to art school and I sort of followed the path through and I became an illustrator but all the time I was I didn't want to just sit around waiting for someone else to create a story that I could then illustrate I was always drawn to trying to write my own story and then picture books are great because it's a it's a whole sort of challenge in itself but it became just frustrating always having to tell a complete story in under 500 words and across 12 spreads right um, yes yeah, it is, it is the most the most um, amazing discipline. I, I have tried to do it. I've never had a picture book published, but I, I have written a few. And and it's a kind of almost like a sort of Zen discipline, isn't it? Trying to get so much story and character and setting into so few yeah. words, also across the spreads. Yes, it's um it's quite an amazing thing to be able to do. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's like writing haiku or something. Yeah. You have to yeah. pack so much in so so few words. Um, and I was just getting frustrated with that. I wanted to actually explore the language a bit more, um, not pare down, but actually sort of spread out into descriptive writing and, um, um, and, and to build a world with, with words, not, not, not build a skeleton with words and then try and flesh it out with pictures. I wanted to actually conjure those pictures you know, in my readers head through words, which is what writers do. And I, 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 wanted, I wanted to be part of that. So, that sort of frustration built up and prompted me to, to try writing longer fiction. And when I did try, finally sit down and, 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 and um, when I finally did it, it, it actually kind of, um, it felt amazing. I mean, it was like a great release. Uh, <laughs> I was going to ask you. Um, yes, I can just do it. I just fell in love with it completely. I mean, I'm not saying that my first writing was any good. It was just the sense of sort of hammering away at the keys and, um, and just enjoying watching it spread out across I mean the first thing I wrote was the baggiest wildest hairiest thing you've ever seen I mean, it was completely unpublishable but um, um, I just it was a thrill to write it. And do you find that you naturally write to a sort of I don't know is it between sort of 50 and 70,000 words now as opposed to 500? Yeah I do try to keep it pared down I mean Malamanda which was the, the, the book that kind of re kind of um, Kind of relaunched my writing again recently. That's fifty-five thousand words, and I think that's a good length for oh, a middle grade. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, sixty. When, when I first started writing, I would hit ninety easily, and and then yeah. um, you know agonise over what to do about that. But now I try to come the other way. I try to sort of build up. So I do try to, to pare down a bit, but um, yeah, fifty-five, sixty—that's a good length, I think. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great length for a reader. Um. So um, we're, we're heading backwards towards, it's not the elephant in the room because, because you do talk about it, um, but towards what you're, you're probably um, best known for in the children's writing world, or perhaps until recently anyway, which is your first illustrating job. I, I always find this is quite amazing, <laughs> the first time you got, you got paid to do it. Um, but, but, but do, do tell me what it was like, kind of, you were working in Heifers, I think in Cambridge at the time, and you, 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 you put your, yes, your right. portfolio on somebody's desk. Yes, so um, I, straight away out of art school, I, I got a job in a children's bookshop um, in Heifers in Cambridge, which was great because I could see, you know, I could see the marketplace, you know, what was selling, what was being made, what was being published. And I can see that Bloomsbury, the publisher Bloomsbury, um, well, they didn't publish children's books, but they were creating a children's list for the first time. So they were just beginning to publish children's books. And I could see that they were pretty much in hiring mode because they were publishing an awful lot of um, 
stuff and finding their way. And so I specifically went in London into Bloomsbury, left my portfolio full of um, full of drawings. And this tells you how far back this was because now, of course, you send those things digitally. But then I, I actually physically had my portfolio and dropped it off in a room full of portfolios um, in 1996, and uh, got a phone call in the shop a couple of days later. I left the shop number. <laughs> And it was Barry Cunningham um, asking me whether I, saying he liked, he liked my drawings and would I fancy doing uh, the cover art for a completely new book by an unknown author called J.K. Rowling. Um, and the book was Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Um, and I said, yes, that'd be great, because I was very excited to be given the chance to do a, a professional illustration commission. I'd been out of art school for a year, and this was my first sort of, my first job. So I actually went back into London and I, I um, went to see him and we had a chat and he gave me an enormous stack of paper, which was the book, uh, as it was as it was then, a year before it was published, and said he fancied a picture of the train and um, Harry walking towards the Hogwarts, Hogwarts Express. And uh, could I please also supply a wizard for the back? And I obviously just went away thrilled to have this, this, this commission, to have this job. I had no, of course, I had no idea this was going to be famous or um, anything other than just another book. Um, as I said, Bloomsbury were publishing a lot of stuff, you know, I mean, there's a lot, a lot of kids' books coming out at that moment. Um, uh, so yeah, so I went home and I drew this picture and there was a bit of to and fro about the design and then I painted, painted it up delivered it and there you go it was my first professional commission and then as you can imagine um it um it kind of wouldn't go away after that <laughs> <laughs> yes, i can imagine i can imagine just gonna say i can't remember exactly when it was but before harry potter came out i i i had been in cambridge um and and i just left i might well have seen you in heifers actually without without realizing it was you um, and, and I read about this book that hadn't been published yet, but had sold for an absolute fortune to America. And people were really excited about that because nothing was happening in the world of children's books. And then suddenly there was, there was this. And I was thinking, oh, maybe this is what's going to give me the oomph to give up my job and start trying to be a writer. Um, and there you were, yes, with your, with your book cover under your belt. So you were the guy who gave Harry Potter his face for the first time. I guess so, yes. I think I was probably the first person to draw um, Harry Potter. And, um, but I should perhaps explain, I mean, this hasn't always been a very sort of, um, certainly not something I've liked to, to dwell on very much because actually, I mean, I would think most illustrators would agree that the very first work you do when you first start out is something you really quite like to forget and you'd like, <laughs> you know, you'd quite like it to be by everybody else because often the first work you do is, not, is nowhere near your best. Yeah. Especially with, with illustrators. I mean, you're finding your feet, you're finding your style. And so this, this image I created was sort of done, I mean, I was on you know, real seat of the pants stuff in terms of a coherent style, um, you know, getting it done and getting it finished professionally. I was about 23 years old. Um, so yeah, but of course it wouldn't go away. It's not um, something that was forgotten. And it was, um, you know, and it opened up all sorts of doors for me in my career that maybe it shouldn't have opened up and it caused confusion and it distorted things and um yeah it was not easy to live with because whatever else i did whatever i created myself 
uh, was never going to um, get out from underneath the shadow of this image and this 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 book, which was so super successful that. Um, uh, and so I was. I mean, I was invited to do all sorts of crazy things, uh, which I wasn't really able to do, and I shouldn't have been asked to do. And I uh, sort of learnt to, to just say no to quite a lot of these things. Um, so was this was this illustrating other books by by well known authors at that point? It, it went beyond that. I mean, it was being on game shows. It was <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was invited to address the Oxford Union. You know, I mean, how does that happen? But that happens because I suppose they've asked J.K. Rowling and she said no. And then they, they're kind of casting around for anyone who can bring the words Harry Potter to whatever project is. And so it did get a bit ridiculous. And um, um, and it became something I really wanted to sort of shut down and, and ignore. And um, it's only really in recent years that it's something I can can be comfortable about again, because it did, it did distort things, um, made, made building my, my own career quite difficult. I can absolutely imagine that having such a bright light shone on it. It must take a tremendous amount of maturity and distance to be able to look back beyond that distortion and uh, and come to terms with it all. Yes, I think so. I mean, time has ticked by now and that helps. And I've had my own success with my own, because this was the point, you see, people would say, wow, you, know, you, did, the Harry, you did Harry Potter cover, but um, I didn't write the book, so I didn't create anything there really I, I just created this image and um that doesn't satisfy me at all being well known for a book cover that's not at all something that excites me or I wanted to create my own stories and so it's only until I wrote Malamanda and, and had some success with that and um that it kind of contextualized the whole Harry Potter thing and it put it, it put it more as a an interesting line on my CV than a kind of all-encompassing dominating achievement um which yeah. it felt before, and achievement's not the right word, it, it just felt like it sort of sat squat over my career. <laughs> <laughs> it's I'm what I like though, when, when I look back at that cover, I mean sadly, I don't know why I don't own a first edition, because I should, because I was looking out for it from before it was published because of this article that I'd read, but sadly I, I, I don't own one, but, but I, I love to think of it and think that that you know even in in the, the the young guy who was producing the cover there was this this yen to produce stories and to create fiction for children and and it it, it does all sort of feed into that that world that that harry potter opened up for so many people i mean obviously it took you a long time to kind of find your groove which it does do for all of us i think but i'm so thrilled that you did and that you know as i say i'm, I'm now talking to you as a best-selling international um, author, which is, which is, you know, it's just a wonderful thing. Yes, and I think it was, I mean, I always, I always felt inspired by the stories themselves. They were, um, you know, an example of, of, um, of writing I felt I could follow. And so it's not, it was always negative, it was more the, um, the creative side um, that, that just was not satisfied with just being a cover artist, you know, I wanted to, to break out of that. Um, and now I go into schools to do the visits and um, usually I'm invited in because of, of uh, Malamanda. Yes. Um, in fact, that's the only reason I get invited in. But occasionally when I go in, some of the um, staff are quite excited to, to meet me because of the Harry Potter connection. But I've noticed that it's usually only the staff who are excited by that. And in fact, the kids don't seem particularly phased anymore. Um, and it's almost feel like, you know, Harry Potter has become such a part of the background culture now that 
it's not finding, it doesn't seem to be finding quite the resonance it did with actual kids. Do you see what I mean? It I do. To... I found that in my school visits as well, because I, um, I, I was doing them a lot from, I guess, 2009, 10 to about 2018. And that just seemed to completely coincide with, with, with the wave growing and then receding. So to start off with, everybody had read them. Everybody was excited. It didn't matter what year group. Um, everybody knew everything about all the characters. And then the films took over and then everybody knew the stories, but they knew them more through the films. And then they seem mm. to connect slightly less. I mean, for, for me, you know, that you have so many words in a book, you, that there's, that there's much more world actually in the books than there possibly can be in the films. Um, and then, yes, and then it sort of seemed to um, just sort of ebb away. And then it was replaced by David Williams. He was the person that everybody had read, which was interesting. Yes, yes, I think that seems to be the case, but it's, um... It's interesting how excited how it's the the uh, it's the staff who are um, all the most excited about it now. It always makes me laugh. <laughs> yes, because they they're the ones who grew up with it. Now we're, we're so well, old. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I am anyway. You're not as old as me. Um, so um, tell me about Malamanda, the the one that really kind of um, made all the difference for you. So actually, I mean, I should explain my my writing career had a bit of a sort of bumpy start. So when I did actually shift over, um, I'm really Try and commit to um, to writing, and I did get a book published in 2012, um, a YA uh, sci-fi novel, um, which was around the time I would have met you, I think, for the first time, because it's published sense. by Chicken House. Yes, so that's yes. Barry Cunningham again. Um, that, yes, exactly, and and that sort of that kind of came and went, but not didn't make any great impact. And then after that, I just couldn't seem to to, to get my next book published, and it just seemed to be really difficult. Um, to make any progress from having that, having had that first book published, um, but it slowly dawned on me. I mean, this is the sort of big, big revelation for me that I, I, I don't really understand YA at all. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really get it. I don't, I don't think that way. I don't, I, I don't click with it at all. And I've been trying very hard to push my, my writing into this sort of YA mode, um, right. really without success. And then when I look back on my writing, everything people loved about it the most or had responded to most warmly was all in a more, more middle grade um, tone. And in fact, it was this sort of slow realization that actually that's, that's what I should be, as you said earlier about finding a groove, that, that was really the groove I should have been in. But um, by then I felt like I muddied the waters by trying in YA and not really getting anywhere. Uh, so I was kind of writing in secret, Malamanda. I told my agent I'd, I'd given up writing and I had this huge um, comic book project on and I'd said told my wife I wasn't going to write anymore because it was all getting too sort of fraught and I remember her saying oh well thank goodness that's over kind of uh, kind of response and, oh. and I just kept it very quiet because I didn't really give up writing um, and I wrote I was writing it in the background and I wrote two-thirds of it um, and it was only when my agent contacted me and kind of wanted to know why I was so quiet I think <laughs> but I told her I was writing it and she asked um, asked to, to see some and it was really her response to it that kind of um, changed changed everything for me, really, because she was so excited about it and uh, um, told me to sort of drop everything else and just finish this, um, which I did. Um, oh, and that's then lovely. She, that's what you want to uh, hear, isn't it? Well, it is, yes. So she, this was all early, I forget which year, 2018, early-ish in the year. Okay, not long And she said, that. if you can finish... No, 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 not at all. If you can finish this by March, 
I only had two thirds of it, that it's in good time to get it in front of publishers before the Bologna Book Fair when they're really responsive. So um, I kind of did drop everything and did sort of throw myself into it. And I finished it and she sent it off. But this is the, this is the sort of smart thing she did because I'd had things published already. I, I, I guess this is her motivation. She hid my name. So yeah. she submitted it under the name of the main character who narrates the stories, which is Herbert Lemon or Herbie to his friends. And so it was Malamanda by Herbert Lemon that went out and she um, refused to tell anybody who'd written it. And so it went out uh, and caused quite a bit of a buzz. Um, and you know how you probably, perhaps you don't, but when you, when I, my experience of something going out on, on submission is you hear nothing for weeks and then- Oh yeah, can... <laughs> absolutely. Well, by the following Monday, like the, um, 48 um, hours later, I had several publishers on the phone. Um, I ended up talking to about 10 publishers, I think. Oh, that's so exciting, and, Thomas. I didn't realise it was that yeah. big a deal. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, there was an auction, an eight, eight-way auction. And, ah. um, you know, and I, I come from basically giving up, <laughs> at least in public, to, to sort of sitting and watching all this unfold. So it was, it was a very exciting moment. And um, to think that I hadn't even really being sure if I was going to show it to anybody and then to, to go straight to this was, was quite a, a humbling moment really because it means I, I really do, like I think many authors do, don't quite know how to judge my own work properly. I think that's, that's a, you do need someone else to look in and, and tell you about what you're doing, I think. Um, you do. And I, I, I had sat on my own sort of, you know, fretting over this on my own in a corner somewhere for too long and it was, it was good to sort of get it out and get it read and, um, and have, have that level of excitement. And so, um, so yeah, so it was published in 2019. Uh, and um, yeah, as I said, it's sold in 20 countries and um, or 20 territories. Uh, and in, it's, you know, it's in the US and, um, and it's, it's been expanded. It was originally a three book contract and it's been expanded to five books. Um, so it's Malamandas the first one and then Gargantus the second, is that right? And Shadow yeah. the third? Yes, so yes, the first one, Malamanda, is about a, sea, a sort of sea monster and sea mists and everything like that. And then the second one is about a storm, so it's a storm theme. We're all in the, always in the same seaside town of Erie on Sea. And then Shadow Ghast is, like I said, with the magic show in the theatre at the end of the pier. The fourth one is called Festigrim. I'm working on that now. That's got a kind of clockwork um, and a ghost train and things. So I'm always trying to hit those sort of seaside notes, that slightly faded English seaside resort. Um, that resonates so well in Turkey. I love that. I know, I know. And I had this this webinar with people in Turkey and they were, you know, and I can imagine Turkish, I imagine the Turkish coast drops straight down into the sea, but like the Italian coast does in places. Whereas I'm writing about this um, sort of flat beach that where the tide goes out and it's two miles away. And so mm -hmm. I, I just, you know, but they, they just sort of love it. And they were saying, you know, we have all these beaches too and we love all the sea and, 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 um, it was just very exciting to think that they'd made that connection um, uh, with the stories. That is so thrilling. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> there's nothing like an eight-way auction for the start of a series to let you know that people think it's okay. No, I know. It, was, it was quite bonkers, but you know, bonkers in a good way. Yeah, oh, wonderful. So, so you've got, you're writing four now, you know that you've got five ahead of you. Presumably they're coming out one a year, are they? Yes, one a year. Sh uh, Shadowcast was delayed. I mean, the 
like, like we all have, you know, the, the pandemic hit and um, um, so it has been delayed. It would normally have been out by now, but it's actually coming in September. Um, so there's one a year and I've got a couple of ideas for what I'll do next that I'm sort of vying with, including one which kind of keeps, kind of keeps taking my attention now. And that's not, not good because um, actually the fifth book of the Erie on the Sea stories is going to be really quite difficult to write. And I really need to be concentrating on that, not, not thinking of new ideas, but well, you know, I think it is. It's a very good sign when you're having to bat the ideas away and keep them down. Um, you want it to be that way around, really, don't you? I suppose so, yeah. And so are you, are you one of the few people that I get to talk to on the podcast who, who this is your full-time job then with the writing? Well, as things stand, um, writing middle grade fiction is, is my full-time job, yes. Um, of course, I, I don't pretend to think it will always be. I, it certainly hasn't always been. So, um, uh, but at the moment, yes, I, I, can, I, can, um, I can certainly get by with... Um, with this, although I'm sort of aware that I mean I am sort of um, looking at taking on illustration commissions as well and everything, because I'm very aware this doesn't sort of last. But um, yeah, I'm going to make I'm just going to make the most of it. So. I, I always like to ask people: Are there are there authors or writing writers about writing that you bear in mind who you find inspiring during the moments when it's not coming easily to you? Um, yeah, you know, I, I have read some, I mean, I've read the Stephen King book on writing, which is very good. And I have, um, I do often, my ears always prick up when I see an article about, about writing, talking about writing. And I, I do like to sort of read these writing advice columns and these lists, but I, I can't possibly keep these things in my head when I'm writing. So I never imagined anyone else can. So, um, you know, I'm quite slow to, to give anyone any writing advice, really. Um, because you can read these these little um, tips and they sound great, but then they, they go in one ear and out the other with me. So um, <laughs> and they don't work for everybody. Like, yeah, that there is no tip that I know of that that works for absolutely everybody. No, no. I and mean, the only thing I could think of, I mean, this, this is something that occurred to me the other day because I had a conversation with somebody who was querying uh, their first book. So this is certainly somebody in the pre-published mode um, and doing quite well. And I think they they were they were quite close to interest from publishers so that was good but talking to to them it was clear that um they had i can't remember how, how it was put but it was something like this isn't my big idea you know this this is my um this is how i want to start but i've really got this great idea and it became clear that there was this other thing that they really wanted to write about which they was holding back uh to sort of put out maybe it's book three or something yeah. And I'm all for everybody thinking ahead. When you're starting it, you should always think ahead about how a career might unfold. But I think if you've got an idea you're that excited about, you're that sort of precious about, that you're hoarding it for later, um, that's probably the idea you should be writing now because there might not be a book three. But if you, know, if you put that out first, you know, maybe that's the book you should be writing. So that did sort of really strike me as an odd thing to do. But I, I um, would certainly not advertise, um, advocate anybody holding back their best ideas. I think you should put your best foot forward when you're writing. So um, that's probably the best piece of writing advice I can think of right now. I think that's absolutely brilliant. Thank you for that. I have I've very much come across it too, talking to people and going to conferences and that kind of thing. And often I know of people, I'm through Chicken House as well with their competition, that, um, that the, the book that they submit is not the one that ultimately gets published because they did there was something else there was something that either they, they'd written the first draft or, or that was kind of eating away inside them that that became the book 
Um, now, I think that's a brilliant piece of advice. And, and getting into publishing is so hard. It has yeah. to be your best idea. It has to be the one that you hug to yourself. Um, that's going to be the one that resonates with other people too. So yes, thank you for that. That's brilliant. Oh, I've got another question for you, um, which is what's on your bedside table at the moment? <laughs> I can tell you what's really on my bedside table. About seven cans of deodorant currently on my bedside <laughs> table that I've confiscated from my teenage son. But underneath um, those cans, I'm not sure what to do with them. Um, you should only have one at a time, surely. Surely. Uh, it's a pile of books. Um, uh, and um, um, Eleanor Ferrante's My Brilliant Friend is on the top of that pile because I've just started it um, and it is absolutely brilliant. Um, and a book called Escape Rooms by Christopher Edge, which is not out until uh, February, but I've been sent a, a proof. Um, so I'm reading that. Um, so yeah, pile of books, um, pile of cans of deodorant that aren't really mine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You said hastily. Now I'm interested because I I found it this yeah at this stage of pandemic and world on fire and all that kind of thing I I, I am finding it quite hard to read my way through it, uh, but nevertheless finding fiction to be a great a great solace. Um, yeah. So I'm interested to see what what's sort of getting people going. Um, I tell you what I wouldn't want to read right right now, and that's a book set in lockdown or a book set in in pandemic. Yeah. I can't think of like to read less, so I'm, I'm quite delighted to read books that are, um, you know, set in normal in in the normal world, as it were, so to speak, of uh, 2019 and before. Yeah, no, same here. I'm quite glad that I'm writing what I think of as historical fiction, which which ends in 2017. Um, and it's interesting because I've been asked to write a couple of magazine articles recently, and they've specifically said, please don't set it in a in a lockdown environment because. A, we don't know what's going to happen, and B, yeah, we'll see death of it. So, uh, yeah, very useful. Oh, well, thank you for that. Um, it's been lovely to hear how the how the career has unfolded and how how well it's going now. I'm absolutely thrilled. Thank you. Yes, it's been a bit of a roller coaster, but um, um, yeah. Well, thank you for inviting me on and for and for chatting about it. Such a pleasure. I'd like to thank Christopher Pett for editing and producing this episode of Prepublished. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. You can also join us on Twitter at Prepub Podcast and find me at my children's books website, which is sophiabennett.com or my adult crime series website, which is sjbennettbooks.com. <laughs>